0: Has anyone heard anything about, from anybody up at the camp? Uh, well, I figured that's why I hadn't heard anything. Yeah, that's what I, I heard. I, I, last I heard was like Tuesday night, Mark texted me. So everything's going well, and the kids are having, uh, too, everybody's having too much fun, probably the adults as well. So that's, uh, that's great. Let me see here. I'm just about ready. Okay, same basic set of announcements right now, and that is that we're having a um, covered dish lunch after church on August the 7th. I don't think there's anything else. Long-term plan, October the 15th for a, a church picnic. How shall a young man cleanse his way? Before we get started, in our study of the Word this evening, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that things are going well at the camp and that uh, the, all the reports are good and, and that the kids are all having a great time and that the uh, uh, teaching is going so well, Father, we just pray that that will continue for the next day or so until uh, the week is over, and we pray that everybody will uh, be able to return safely home. Father, we also remember at this time that there are a number of folks on our prayer list who are fighting uh, everything from cancer to the need for a kidney, in the case of Jim Burney, uh, Daniel Ice's little baby son, newborn uh, needs, uh, well, surgery, all of these things we need prayer for, we bring before you, and we know that you will strengthen those in these circumstances and uh, answer the prayer, and that we are confident that th- this will be a good opportunity for them to be a testimony to your grace. Thank you for this time we have to study your word this evening, and pray that we will uh, be able to understand the things that we study, and that we will be strengthened and encouraged in our own faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Romans chapter 2, so go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. And last time, as we came to the uh, end of the second chapter, we see that there is this section that is introduced uh, by the apostle dealing with the issue of the what the Jews are relying upon in order to give them... Standing before God. This is one of the toughest issues for people, whether they're Americans, whether they're Jewish, whether they're uh, Muslims, no matter where they are, anywhere in the world, is that there is this sense, it comes out of the sin nature because the basic orientation of our sin nature is arrogance. It is self-absorption. It is this thought that somehow we can do something, bring something do anything, go through some sort of ritual that gives us merit before God. And I pointed out last time, using an illustration from the uh, Casey Anthony trial that just went on, that, and if we just think about it in a legal sense, that whenever we commit an infraction of the law, we know that no matter how obedient we have been to the law, no matter how long we have... Observe the law, that if we violate the law, then we become uh, guilty and we are going to be penalized depending on how we have broken the law. Just think if you get one of those wonderful little white envelopes in the mail that has as its return address the Department of Treasury and it is alerting you to an, uh, an audit from the Internal Revenue Service, and that if you have violated something, Then you know that you are going to be penalized. I'm not going to say anything about the fact that you'll probably get penalized even if you haven't violated anything, but that's a totally different subject. Uh, but when we violate law, we violate whatever the rules are, there are penalties. When you're in, when you're playing football and you watch a football game or a basketball game or a baseball game and there is an infraction of the rules, then you know that the umpire or the referee, or whoever it is whose job it is to make sure everything is done according to the rules, you know that they are not going to think at all about all of the ways in which you were uh, obedient, all the ways that you were in bounds. It doesn't matter if you run and you barely step. If you have, if and I've seen this and you have too on football games, if a runner gets the ball and he's at his one-yard line, and his foot just barely touches that line and he's out of bounds, then it doesn't matter how well he runs to the other goal line, the ball's going to come all the way back because he's violated the law. It doesn't matter whether the infraction is minor or major. When the rules are broken, when the law is broken, you're guilty of everything and there's a penalty assigned. And yet, isn't it amazing that people we talk to all the time think that somehow, in some way, that just doesn't apply when it comes to their standing before God? That here God is the supreme judge of the universe who is omniscient, knows all there is to know about internal motivations as well as external behavior, and we think that he's just some pansy pushover Probably like the parents they had that they could wrap around their little finger, and that no matter what we've done, that the good that we've done, God's going to say, "Well, that's okay. That that outweighs the bad." Nothing else in life is ever adjudicated on that basis, but we think that God is going to do it that way, and this is what Paul, the, the thrust of what the Apostle Paul, in the New Testament, and indeed the Old Testament message teaches as well that no matter how well we run, no matter how well we do, no matter how many commandments we uh, are obedient to, no matter how many good moral things that we perform, it never can overcome the deficit that occurs when we violate God's commandments, God's law, God's character. And yet we always see people, the moralist, who thinks that somehow he is he has not violated this law and he 's good enough to get into heaven and that is who the apostle Paul uh, dealt with at the beginning of this of this chapter chapter two, and then starting from verse five on as he deals with the five through seven eleven he deals with the eternal uh, judgment of God. And then from, uh, 12 and following, he begins to shift to those who in the Jewish community are relying upon the Mosaic law, their obedience to the Mosaic law. And it's not a complete obedience. The focal point of his discussion comes down to circumcision. And that is because in Second Temple Judaism, the rite of circumcision had become a, a, a symbol of one's identification with Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, which is viewed as salvific. That means they believed that if they were in right relationship to God through the covenant of Abraham, then they were saved. This is what we will see in our study this evening. So in verse 17, Paul says, Indeed, you're called a Jew, and rest on the law. And make your boast in God. And th- in this section that follows from verse 17 down through verse 24, uh, he outlines these five things. They rest in the law. They are, they are counting on obedience to the Mosaic law, the Torah, to get them into heaven. They boast in God because of their relationship with God via the covenants. And they are able to approve the things that are excellent because they have revelation from God. And they're confident that they can be a guide to the blind because they have revelation. The mistake that is made is that they're identifying a position of privilege in relation to knowledge about God and God's revelation as equivalent to a position of salvation. And yet all of those blessings that God gave the Jewish people were designed to teach them about God so that they could then have salvation that those privileges in and of themselves did not save them. And then in verse 25, we saw last time that Paul focuses on circumcision. And he uses the argument, it's an, it begins an explanation, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. And that is a... <clears throat> uh, At that point, verse 25, that's a third-class condition. So if you you are able to and you do it and you keep the law, then it would be profitable. But what matters, it's not the circumcision, it's the keeping of the law that makes it profitable because in the next sentence he says, but if you are a breaker of the law, that is, if in any way, in any form, you violate God's standard, then circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It's as if the, the, the external did not apply. So we want, I started the last time, gave a brief survey related to the doctrine of circumcision. This is going to, uh, relate to what we've studied in, what we'll study in Acts, what we'll study in, uh, Colossians as well. So this comes up a number of times, so we're going to go through it this evening. First of all, just a brief definition of what circumcision is. It's the re- removal of the foreskin of the male genital organ from the, uh, Hebrew word mule. Which means to circumcise or to let oneself be circumcised, and the root idea is to have something uh cut off or removed. This is the, the, the meaning. It is an physical, external physical uh procedure. Now there keep in mind as I go through this that there's a lot of parallels between the Jewish reliance on the external action of circumcision and the Christian reliance, in some circles, on the external ritual of baptism. The idea in both cases is that if I have participated in this external ritual, then that is what is effective or efficacious in justifying me or saving me. And it's putting the emphasis on what I do rather than on what someone else does on my behalf. But what I want you to pay attention to tonight as we go through this and as I read some quotes to you later on is how within Second Temple Judaism, there's clear evidence of an understanding of some key doctrinal principles related to salvation. It's interesting how this sort of appears, but it is, it becomes covered up, lost in the, in the confusion, so to speak. So the first point is just a simple definition of what circumcision circumcision is. Secondly, the second point is that the significance of circumcision is that it was the external sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It's the external sign of the Abrahamic covenant, just as water baptism is an external sign of being a Christian. It is not what makes one a Christian. And if you are not baptized, you're still justified or saved. Hold your place here. And let's turn to a parallel passage I was just thinking about in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 16. Last chapter of Mark. Now the last part of the last chapter of Mark is... Frequently debated over its textual veracity, whether or not this is part of the original uh, gospel of Mark, was this part of the ending. And those who hold to a form of the Westcott-Hort theory, which came into existence in the late 19th century, which is... A theory of how to reconcile, uh, different, uh, Greek manuscripts, some of whom, some left out a word here or there or added a word or changed the phrase. Think that this should be left out because it's not in a couple of the oldest manuscripts. Problem with that is that more recent manuscripts could have been faithful copies of even older manuscripts. So older is not necessarily more accurate or better. Not only that, but the four documents that are considered to be the oldest were from, were preserved in, in Egypt because of the dry climate. But Northern Africa was also the seedbed of much heresy in the first three centuries of Christianity. So, so there's, there's all kinds of intricate little problems related to this, this whole issue. And the majority text as well as the uh, received text, the Texas Receptus, which is the basis for the King James uh, translation, uh, both include this particular uh, this particular ending. And so, if we look at Mark sixteen sixteen, Jesus says, "He who believes and is baptized will be saved." And there are people who look at that verse and say, "See, you got to believe and be baptized in order to be saved." But the clarification comes in the last phrase. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Doesn't say he who is not baptized will be condemned. Doesn't say he who does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. Uh, the basis of condemnation is not believing, same as in John 3:18, that we're condemned because we have not believed, not because of baptism. Baptism is inserted in verse 16 because it was assumed that the person who believed in Jesus Christ, as Savior, would be baptized as the external sign, just as it was assumed in the Old Testament that if one was uh, a Jewish male or converted to Judaism, then one would need to be circumcised. So this is the same kind of issue that comes up in chapter 16, and the issue isn't the external ritual. The issue is the internal reality of faith, faith in the promise of God to save through uh, Jesus Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross. Okay, back to our topic. Now let's go to the Old Testament. We're going to work our way through the Old Testament tonight. And look at a number of different passages so that you don't forget where different uh, Old Testament books are. And you can identify these key passages and phrases as we go through. The ritual of circumcision is introduced when God establishes, or in the literal translation of the Hebrew, cuts a covenant with Abraham, that's, how, that's a literal meaning when they, they cut a covenant because in, in sealing of, of a covenant, there was always a sacrifice and that involved uh, cutting the, or killing the animal. So in Genesis 17.10, God says to Abraham, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. The word there in the Hebrew is your seed. That word is important. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, uh, 315 and 16, which is the seed of the woman. God said, um, every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. See, he doesn't say anything about justification or salvation. In fact, if you hold your place there and just turn back a page or so to Genesis 15:6, Genesis 15:6, we have the statement that Abraham believed in the Lord. And he, the Lord, accounted it or imputed it to him for righteousness. That's the basis for a relationship with God. It's that imputation or accrediting of righteousness to someone. It's not their righteousness. It is a gift God gives. It doesn't make you moral or righteous. It is a legal declaration. What theologians refer to as forensic or legal justification. So back to verse 17. So it's not... The circumcision, because Abraham, and as we study Genesis fifteen six, that is really a, a parenthetical verse that is talking about something that had preceded the events of Genesis fifteen. Abraham trusted in God and was justified years before. Then God promised him a covenant. He promises it in Genesis twelve one through three, again in Genesis fifteen, and the formal covenant ratifying. Ceremony does not occur until Genesis chapter 17. So circumcision is a consequence of the covenant. It is not a cause of the covenant. It is not the basis for blessing. It is a sign of being in a a, a relationship with God on the basis of this covenant. So just the order of events teaches us that circumcision was never designed as a basis for a relationship with God. It is a sign that one is already in that relationship with God. So it is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, not a sign of the Mosaic covenant. What was the sign of the Mosaic covenant? The Sabbath. That's the sign of the Mosaic covenant. It is the observance of that the seventh day of the week and not working on the seventh day of the week. So the sign for the church age is the is water baptism, uh, believer's baptism. The sign of the uh, Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath and the sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. Now, God goes on to explain <coughs> some of the details related to circumcision. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child, it only applies to the males, not to the females. There is a thing that is called female circumcision, but it is really mutilation, and it is a pagan practice that has nothing whatsoever to do with the Bible. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generation, he who is he born in your house, or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, that is, uh, purchase of a slave, and the idea of slavery under the Mosaic law was closer to what we call indentured servitude than what was referred to as chattel slavery uh, in, in the South prior to the war between the states. Uh, verse 13, he who is born in your house and the one who is bought with your money must be circumcised. I don't see any leeway there. They must be, no exception. That's going to be important in a, in a little while. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. The covenant's an everlasting covenant, not because you're circumcised, but because that's God's will, that's the way God set it up. It was a gift given, a possession, a title deed that is non-refundable, uh, non-reversible. A sign that you own that is that you are circumcised. Like if I were to give you a car and sign the title deed over to you, then that would be, uh, that's a free gift. That's the covenant. The fact that you take care of the car would be a sign that you are the owner of the car. Genesis 17, 14, And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Sunday morning we talked about this Hebrew word. It means to be removed by death. It is a death penalty that the person who is not circumcised is to come under uh, a death penalty, be com- completely removed from the, from the people. Now, before we go any further into what the scripture says well, I want to cover one a third point and then we'll get into a fourth point we need to understand how Second temple Judaism understood circumcision that way we can understand a little more about why Paul is saying what he is saying in um, uh, Romans chapter 2 as well as Galatians Colossians other passages and you'll find it fascinating okay the third point is that circumcision doesn't originate with this circumcision had been practiced by different Cultures, different peoples, at different times, long before Abraham. Uh, In some cultures, they did they practiced with males only when they reached puberty, at the age of 13. Then they would have uh, a circumcision ritual. There's evidence among uh, Egyptians. There's evidence among most of your Western Semitic people. Those are the people who lived in and around Canaan, in and around uh, Western Syria. But Eastern Semites who lived in Mesopotamia did not practice, uh, circumcision. So it was a, a practice that was often related to puberty, but it didn't have a spiritual significance. God takes a practice that is already present, as he does with baptism, other people, other religious groups baptized, and gives it and assigns it a particular meaning and significance in relation to his, in relation to his plan. So the first these first three points just introduce us to circumcision. Now this fourth point I want to talk about is how circumcision, circumcision was understood in Second, Second Temple Judaism. Now what do I mean by Second Temple Judaism? First temple was Solomon's temple. It's built approximately 966, dedication approximately 966 B.C., and it's destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. When it was destroyed, that's the end of the first temple period. Then when the Jews returned under Zerubbabel, beginning in approximately 537 B.C., they began to rebuild the temple. They didn't have all of the wealth, the money, everything else. There were other problems that came into play. And they finally completed it in 516. It was a much more humble uh, temple than what had been there prior. And so that's referred to the second temple, and it is not destroyed until the Romans under Titus destroy it in the um, uh, rebellion of the Jews that was from 66 to 70, and they destroy it in 70. Now, Herod came in in approximately... Uh, 25 or so B.C., I can't remember the exact date, but sometime right around there, and decided in his archi- ar- architectural genius that he wanted to completely renovate the temple and back to its glorious days like Solomon. And so they they rebuilt the, built this enormous platform on the Temple Mount and they built the walls and all of these other things that went with it, but they never stopped the sacrifices. So it's net, that's not considered a third temple. It is the first, still the second temple because the sacrifices never ceased. So you can really divide Second Temple Judaism in some ways in, into probably just architecturally into two segments, but. Second Temple Judaism primarily refers to how the Mosaic Law is interpreted after the exile and what becomes uh, the basic, the foundation or the predecessor for modern Judaism. It is Second Temple Judaism that is the basis of Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, when he came the first time. Now, I... Decided to do some work on this today. I thought this would be interesting. And I have a Encyclopedia of Judaism edited by a number of Jewish scholars. Uh, one of them who's well known is Jacob Neusner, who's written a number of books dealing with, uh, Judaism in this, in this period. And he wrote the article on circumcision in the Encyclopedia of Judaism. And he writes some th- interesting things about this, and he goes to, av- having gone through the biblical section and basically some of the passages I've looked at in Genesis 17 as well as some we'll look at in a minute, he goes to a passage in Ezekiel. So I want you to turn in your Bible with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel comes after Lamentations, Jeremiah Lamentations, Ezekiel, It's just before Daniel and then the 12, so we're in Ezekiel chapter 16. Now, I want to read this passage to you, and then we'll talk about what it means, and then we'll look at what he says about it. This is really interesting. So Ezekiel says in verse 16, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, this was a typical way in which God addressed Ezekiel. Son of man. Cause Jerusalem to know her abomination. So right away we know that this message from God is going to identify uh, Israel's, or the, especially the southern kingdom of Judah's, disobedience to God. Abomination usually relates ultimately to their idolatry, which is nothing less than treason against God who is the true king of, of Israel. Cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Now he's going to take the history of the Jewish people and talk as if it is, and talk to them as if using this as an analogy, using as an analogy the human birth process. So as you're going to start off, you're going to say, your birth and your nativity, that is your arrival, your coming, your, your beginning, are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. This is talking about the racial progenitors to Abraham. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling claws. In other words, this is, you had a, you had a pretty much an unimpressive birth and you were uh not uh very well accepted into the family of mankind in history. Uh no I pitied you. It was as if you were just a foundling. Nobody really cared about you. No I pitied you in verse five to do any of those things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field. The open field represents the world. You're just you're just out there in the world, just another another people of many peoples in the world. Uh, you were thrown out into the open field when you were yourself were loathed on the day that you were born. From the very beginning, there was a hostility to you. Then we come to verse 6. Verse 6 says, And when I passed by you, I being God, and saw you struggling in your own blood. Now, in, in the analogy, what's the blood that's there? This is a picture of a woman who's been out in the fields and she's giving birth, goes into labor. She just squats and gives birth to this child and then leaves it. What's the blood? What's, the, what's there? What's the afterbirth? All of that is what is present from the birth. That's really important to understand that distinction here based on this analogy. I passed by you, saw you struggling in your own blood, and I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live, I made you thrive like a plant. This is the grace of God calling out Abraham and and nurturing the nation through the period of the patriarchs and then uh, bringing them eventually out of Egypt. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered you with your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine and I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and anointed you with oil. What's that analogous to? It's analogous to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, let's listen to me. Listen to what we I have here in uh from Neussner's article on circumcision in the Encyclopedia of Judaism. I just want to read uh, just a few uh, sections. Regarding Ezekiel 16.6, he says, uh, this is cited prominently in today's prayer at the Bris service. Uh, this last year I had my first opportunity to attend a Briss. Uh, one of the Jewish men I know had a, had a son, and so back in February he invited me to come and to be a part of the celebration when they had the uh had the circumcision and the um, so I did. And there are a number of prayers that are said that are all part of the Jewish prayer book, and that's what Neusser is referring to here. He says Ezekiel sixteen six is cited prominently in today's prayer, but which occurs also in second century sources. That's the period from one hundred to two hundred, the period immediately following the destruction of the second temple which shows that it obviously reflects the thinking preceding that, which is during the, exactly during this period of the time of Christ. He said this is cited prominently in today's prayer, but it also occurs in 2nd century sources within the context, again, the context of 2nd century sources of an anti-Christian polemic. Okay, so the context you'll find this in, in the prayer book has been modified from what it was before so that it is set against what Christianity has come to teach at that time. Very important to understand that. And so then he cites the verse here and he says, its significance in the context of the debate on the efficacy of works over faith is evident from the following second century midrash in other words what he's saying is by the early second century within judaism we have come to understand that the christians are saying that faith alone is all you need and we're saying it's works god's going to be impressed by what we do by our observance of the mitzvah mitzvot okay now here's what we have in the second century midrash the makilta vo in chapter 5 Rabbi Mattia bin Keresh used to say, or Keresh, used to say, Behold, it says, I passed by you and looked at you and saw it was a time of love, Ezekiel 16:8. Now, how is he going to interpret that? This means the time had arrived for God's vow to Abraham to be fulfilled, namely that he would save his children. See, he's looking at this. Now, he's cast it totally within the context of salvation that he would save his children, that God would save his children. But as yet they had no commandments to perform, because the Mosaic law hadn't been given yet, by virtue of which they might merit redemption. As it says, your breasts were fashioned and your hair had grown, but you were naked, Ezekiel 16:8, meaning that they were naked of all commandments. Now, where do we see that in the passage? We don't. That's that's. See, this is what happens by the time of the second, late Second Temple Judaism, is that this sort of non-literal interpretation has set in. So it is no longer uh, interpreting. Even though this is an analogy, it's no longer interpreting it within a framework of, of a literal interpretation. So the the nakedness is, is, this means you're naked of all commandments, but the idea of not having commandments isn't present in the 18th chapter at all. God, therefore, assigned them two commandments, the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb and circumcision, which they were to perform so as to merit being saved. So how do you get saved? Observing the Passover and being circumcised. As it says, I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said, By your blood live, by your blood live. One cannot ex- obtain reward except by deeds. Ah, see, he's right there. Reward works or get, uh reward is by works, but salvation is a free gift. I have to make that distinction. Now, Noisner goes on to say. As the Ezekiel exegesis demonstrates, the central symbol of the circumcision ritual was its blood. Ah, isn't that interesting? Regularly, therefore, we find reference not only to the salvific nature of the rite in general. I love that. This guy uses the word salvific. I use that word, and people go, I never heard that word. Is that really a word? So you have to bring a dictionary to class. Uh, We find reference not only to the salvific nature of the rite in general, but more specifically to the saving merit of circumcision blood. Now, you see what's going on here? Isn't this interesting? There is an understanding that it it, there must be the shedding of blood in order to have salvation. It's just it's misplaced in terms of, of the circumcision ritual. Nowadays, a blessing accompanies the symbolic placing of wine on the lips of the baby boy The baby boy, just after the circumcision wound has been cauterized. And then he goes on to talk about how in the Jew, rabbinic Jewish tradition, as in Christianity, wine symbolizes blood. So there's that, by, by placing the drop of wine on the lips of the, of the baby boy, it's symbolic of his participating in the sacrifice uh, through the shedding of blood. He goes on to say, at any rate, the symbolic value of circumcision as an act of salvation is evident throughout our second century sources. It is the sign of the covenant that saves. See, what I just showed you by looking at at, at, at Genesis 17 is that Abraham was already saved. We don't know how many years, decades he had been saved. Genesis 15:6. He's given the covenant, the promise of the covenant, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 17, long before there's any circumcision. Circumcision was a sign of something that had already accomplished, just as baptism for the Christian is a depiction of something that's already accomplished, not the means to get salvation. So he says... At any rate, the symbolic value of circumcision as an act of salvation is evident throughout our second century sources. It is the sign of the covenant that saves. The blood drawn in in the act is equivalent to the blood of the Paschal Lamb. Isn't that interesting? Because what Christianity understands is the Passover Lamb is a picture of Jesus Christ. This is what John the Baptist was indicated or meant when he said, Behold, speaking of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We understand the Paschal Lamb to be another one of those pictures depicting the future perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So he says, um, the blood drawn in the act is equivalent to the blood of the Paschal Lamb that Israelites smeared on the doorpost to warn off the angel of death. Incidentally, there's no angel mentioned in Exodus only God, uh, to warn off the angel of death on the night the firstborn Egyptians were slaughtered. It is the paradigmatic, that means it's the pattern, it's the paradigm uh, of salvation. It's the paradigmatic salvific example of a good work practiced in every generation from Abraham onward. As such, it has commanded the universal allegiance of Jews throughout history. So salvation comes through circumcision. Now, what about modern times? Well, things have changed. I know you didn't know anything had changed, but it has. He says, related to the present understanding of Judaism, he writes, again in our time, the issue has been addressed, this time on different but related grounds. 19th century opposition. I just thought this was interesting to throw it in here. 19th century opposition to circumcision within the Jewish community was rooted in evolutionism. Isn't that interesting? See, they don't believe there's a God anymore. They don't believe in objective revelation. So within Reformed Judaism, they've thrown out the objective truth and the reality of God's commandment. This was just something that sort of got cobbled together in our tradition. And so we don't need it anymore. So 19th century opposition was rooted in evolutionism, the assumption that a mature Judaism could safely pare away the dysfunctional ritual of its youth. I just thought that was an interesting comment. Okay, now back to that topic. He says, For many, therefore, circumcision now is hardly the central act of faith that it once was. Almost no one is aware anymore of the salvific symbolism it once contained. Isn't that interesting? Talk to anybody who's Jewish today. The, the second-century midrash that I was reading earlier that says that it has a primarily a salvific significance—they don't. That's not anywhere present in Judaism anymore. That got lost somewhere along the way. So it's, now it's just—it's just a ritual. Uh, he says almost no one is aware anymore of the salvific symbolism it once contained. The blood that saves. The parallelism between circumcision blood and the blood of the Paschal Lamb, the very real hopes once invested in the child as a potential Messiah, because they, any any male could become possibly the Messiah, even the that, that real hope that the child could be the potential Messiah, or the cultic symbolism, by cultic he's using that in a different sense than you and I normally use it. He's talking about in terms of just the ritual symbolism. the the ritual symbolism of sacrifice that dominated centuries of rabbinic thought. But the rite still maintains its hold on the popular imagination, at least in most circles. Since baby boys in North America are systematically circumcised anyway, Jews who advocate Jewish circumcision as a religious responsibility are at least sheltered from the need to justify their own practice in the light of contrary cultural trend, such as Germany presented a century and a half ago or... San Francisco today. In San Francisco right now, they have passed a measure to put on the ballot in November called the Male Genital Mutilation Bill, where they are going to ban circumcision for those under the age of 18. That's going to affect Muslims as well as Jews and maybe some Christians who would practice it for a a different reason. I find this interesting because they, a number of studies have demonstrated that one of the unintended benefits of circumcision is that those who have been circumcised have a much lower, inc- a significantly lower incident of HIV infection. So in San Francisco where you have this, it doesn't make sense. The pagan mind has just turned in on itself and it just want to make everything worse. I mean, it just it's insane. However, people who can think, who are not in San Francisco and in the state legislature, there aren't many in the California state legislature, but there are a few, uh, are going to pass a, uh, have, have a pending state assembly bill, which would limit local bans on male circumcision and make declarations on the health benefits of the practice. In other words, the state's going to overrule uh, San Francisco. So. And so it goes. Okay, now let's uh, continue to look at what Scripture says. The um, circumcision itself is found in a number of passages. I want to just go through these: Genesis seventeen twenty three to twenty seven. It's a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Then in Genesis twenty one four, Abraham circumcised Isaac on the eighth day. He Obey's the command when a child is male child is born on the eighth day, circumcise him. So that he did that with Isaac. The next time we have it mentioned is in Genesis thirty-four thirteen to sixteen. Genesis thirty-four uh, thirteen to sixteen. This is one of those great little episodes that occur in Scripture that show us that the Bible is really not just trying to gloss over. All the flaws of its uh, progenitors, but you know presents all these patriarchs' flaws and all. In Genesis 34:13 through 16, we have this little episode where you have the 12 sons of of uh, of um, Jacob, uh, Jacob, and they are uh, they have a young uh, a daughter Dinah, and Dinah is kind of a hot little. Chick, I guess, you know, she's out there trying to uh, woo the local young men in Shechem. And she catches the attention of, of uh, Shechem, the son of Hamor, uh, the Hivite. So he's the son of the local aristocrat. And he just gets, I mean, lust gets the best of him. So he ends up raping her. So she goes home. And tells her brothers. Now her brothers come back and they say, "Well, I mean, they're just devious." And this is um, this is Simeon and Levi, and they 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 decide they're going to get their revenge because their sister's been taken advantage of. And so, so they come back and they say, "Y'all, you need to marry our sister. Convince him to marry Dinah." And then she wants to marry. Him. And then she, they say, "But in our culture, in our culture, you just can't." Uh, uh, marry some, uh, 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 one of us can't marry, uh, a woman can't marry a man who's not circumcised. So in verse 13 we read, but the sons of Jacob answered uh, Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to him, or sa- they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who's uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, If every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. Now they don't really mean that, but they're being, they're, 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 they're setting up a, a very interesting early military strategy here of dis, disarming the opponent. And so after they have their little surgical procedure and they're all in pain, then, uh, the, the brothers are going to come in, and uh, the, Simeon and Levi, and they're going to massacre all the males in Shechem. And they do, and they kill them all. So this is a real blight on the uh, moral reputation of the sons of Jacob, and it shows how they're becoming more pagan than the pagan Canaanites. One of the reasons why God is going to remove them from the land and isolate them down in Egypt so that the they can get away from this pagan influence and they're forced to um, identify with one another, and uh, God will protect them and build them into a great nation. The next time it's mentioned is in um, Exodus chapter four verses twenty four to twenty six so just turn over a few pages to Exodus chapter four, and this is the circumcision of Moses' son. Now Moses has already left Egypt when he was approximately 40 years of age, fled to Midian, got married to Zipporah, lived 40 years there, had a son, and now he's coming back to Egypt to be uh the the deliverer. And on his way back in verse 24, he is <clears throat> comes under an attack from God who is going to take his life. Why? because he hasn't circumcised his son. What did God tell Moses? This must happen. The reason it has to happen is because circumcision is a sign that the descendants of Abraham have been distinguished or set apart from the rest of humanity. It is their positional sanctification, so to speak. It's a picture of that just as baptism and the New Testament is a picture of our positional sanctification and being set apart in Christ. So it is a picture of that positional sanctification, and he hasn't uh, he hasn't um, uh, had his son circumcised. So God is going to take him li- take his life. It's a sin unto death. So in verse twenty four we read, "It came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. How we don't know." Some suggest it was illness. Some suggest other uh, other things, but we we have no idea. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, "Surely you are a husband of blood to me." So she's she's uh, condemning him because of this. But it is that act of circumcising, uh, probably Gershom at this point, uh, that uh, she that God. Relents, lets Moses go so that Moses uh, recovers his life. And Zipporah says in verse 26, "You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision." But now it is okay for Moses to go about his task because he had to recog- he had to be one who was obedient to God, and in terms of his family as well. Now the next time we see this mentioned is in Exodus 12:44. 48, in relation to the observance of the first Passover. The uncircumcised could not eat the Passover meal. Uh, scripture says, but every man's servant who is bought for money, that's his, that's a indentured servant, when you have circum- circumcised him, then he may eat, but not if he's not circumcised. Verse 48, and when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it. God is serious about this. You can't have Passover, you can't participate in these rituals unless you have become positionally set apart, which is what's indicated by circumcision. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. Leviticus 12, 2 and 3 gives us some of the details of circumcision uh, speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the days of her customary impurity she, uh, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. But then we start getting to the spiritual significance of the physical act in Leviticus 26:41. Now, if you look at Leviticus chapter 26, what you discover is that this is the chapter that outlines the various stages of divine judgment upon Israel for their disobedience. And when you come down to verse <clears throat> verse 41, we read, and <clears throat> uh, then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, he shall return to his own, am I in 26? I can't read, 25. And I just had my eyes checked. Um, 26. 26. Uh, This is in the fourth cycle of discipline. When I have cut off your supply of bread, uh, I still can't read, 41, 41, okay, it's in the fifth cycle of discipline, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember and I will remember the land. See, what's happened by verse 41 is they're taken out of the land, and the only way to get back to the land is if they, verse 40, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me. So why are they unfaithful? Because of their arrogance and their disobedience to the covenant, to God's word. And so God says, if their uncircumcised hearts, See, the issue is their mental attitude, their relationship to God, their spiritual relationship to God, not the physical. The physical was to demonstrate a spiritual reality, just as baptism for the Christian is to demonstrate a spiritual reality. The efficacy isn't in the baptism, the efficacy is in the faith in Christ. In the Old Testament, the efficacy wasn't in the act of circumcision. The efficacy is in the being humbled and obedient to God. So the picture of circumcision is a picture of one's proper relationship to God in terms of obedience and submission to His authority. Now this is confirmed again by the next use, which is in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16. In Deuteronomy 10, 16, we have a reaffirmation of the Mosaic Covenant, and that's the context of verses 12 through 16. 14 calls upon heaven as the witness to the covenant, indeed heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. See, it's not physical, it's spiritual. And it has to do with, what does it say next? And be stiff-necked no longer. See, stiff-necked is an attitude of rebellion and arrogance towards God. So the issue, once again, is what God says again and again and again in the Old Testament and the New Testament, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and He will deliver you. So the issue is, obedience and submission to God. Now, this is a problem. It goes on through the Old Testament as outlined in the rest of Deuteronomy and into Deuteronomy 28. You have the parallel to Leviticus 26, the judgment of God that will come upon the nation for their disobedience. And why is God going to judge them? Because of their uncircumcised heart because of their disobedience to God, their stubbornness, and their refusal to submit to him. But it doesn't stop with that. God promises that there will come a time when God will bring them back to the land. And in uh, Deuteronomy uh, 28, God, uh, verse 45, God said, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes with it, which he commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. So they're going to come under judgment. But the hope is then defined in chapter 30. Chapter 30 There is a promise that God says now in verse one, now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've said before you, and you call them to mind where among all the nations where the Lord, your God drives you and you return to the Lord, your God and obey his voice. See, we've been studying that in relation to what Peter's preaching in Acts 2, to turn back to God, away from idolatry, away from disobedience, and turn back to God. And when you return to the Lord your God, uh, Shuv there, when you turn back to the Lord your God and obey his voice, according to all that I commanded you today and your, chi- and your children, with all your heart, with all your soul, see, did, he said that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. But see, there's got to also be an internal change, and that's what's covered in verse 6. Verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. This is the new covenant. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, this is related to what? It's stated in Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-five, and following, where God says in relation to this future time, then, that is when there's this restoration, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. That's that's what's talked about in Deuteronomy 36. Uh, a new spirit, and I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, the, the picture of circumcision is the removal of flesh. That's the sin nature. So I will give you, a, a, remove your heart of stone out of your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes. You will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land I will give to your fathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. And one last verse from the Old Testament. Jeremiah 9, 24 to 25. Here Jeremiah says, but let him who glories glory in this that he understands and knows me, not ritual, but personal relationship with God, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the, uncir- with the uncircumcised. And I pointed out last time that the Hebrew there doesn't say circumcised with the un- as if there's two groups of people. He says the circumcised uncircumcised. In other words, there are people who are physically circumcised, but they're not circumcised to the heart. And those are the ones who are going to be judged based on Genesis 9, 25, because the physical is only a symbol. If there's not the internal reality, then there's no, there's no real circumcision. And so this is what we get into in the New Testament. Next time I'll come back and we'll look at the New Testament teaching, in Galatians and Colossians and Philippians. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at what the Old Testament teaches in relation to circumcision as the foundation for what is said in the New Testament, that there's no contradiction, that the Old Testament emphasizes an internal spiritual heart circumcision. It's not just the physical. And without the physical, if the internal is there, the external is not determinative. Father, we pray that we can help. Uh, we can understand this because it emphasizes for us that the issue is our internal spiritual relationship with you having that right, and that is based on faith alone in Christ alone, faith in your word of a promised deliverer who came and who delivered us from our sins, and that that is based on, on his work, not our work. He is the one who performs the commandments, the mitzvot that give us the basis for salvation. It's his righteousness, not our righteousness. And so like Abraham, we are justified by faith alone and not by works. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.